Hello, this is Angela Schaefers, the host of Your Story Matters radio show. Today I have special guest Becky Blanton. She is a writer and she has a wonderful and amazing story that she's actually shared on TED and she blogs about and shares at her website. Welcome to the show, Becky. Hi, thank you. I'm really excited to have you on today and to share some of your story. I know you have an ebook where you've started um, writing out some of your thoughts, and I'd love for you to share about that. But before we get to that part and, and your current blog and what you're doing now, can you share with the audience some of your background and history? I've been a journalist for 23 years, and prior to that, I was a, um, a police officer, graduated from the police academy in Colorado, and um, have had a lot of different jobs throughout my life, including massage therapist, and I milked cows. And That sounds like an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did, I did that when I was in college. It was a, it was a part-time day job, so, mm-hmm. so I just had a lot, of, a lot of variety of experiences, and mm-hmm. uh, it's all helped with being a writer. I'm sure it has, and I'm sure that's added to the different thoughts and values and beliefs that you carry around with you from, you know, these different experiences in your life. I know that you went on to, as you said, become a journalist and a writer. What happened that really shifted things for you in this journey you were on? Well, my, my dad died in 2006, and he had known that he, uh, he had a, a terminal brain tumor, and um, I hadn't spoken to him in 15 years. And when mm. I heard that he had the tumor... Uh, I contacted him. Uh, he'd been very abusive in my childhood, and so we'd separated, and I had any contact for 15 years. Wow. And, yeah, a long time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when I heard he was he was dying, I contacted him and, and, uh, and went out of my way to kind of reconcile and forgive him, knowing that he was going to die, and I was, I was doing that for myself uh, as much as for him. Mm-hmm. But we, uh, you know, we connected again, and we talked and had dinner and um, did some things, and then he died the following year, mm-hmm. and the death kind of hit me pretty hard, so I was working a, a job as an editor on a, a newspaper in Colorado, and I, I decided about a month after his death to quit the job, because one of the things that he told me, I asked him if he had any regrets in his life, and he said his one regret was that he never traveled, mm-hmm. and he never got see the things he wanted to see because he was a workaholic, mm-hmm. and I was a workaholic. So after he died, I thought, you know, he had a point there, and uh, so I, I decided to, uh, you know, to quit the job and to travel and to kind of do what he hadn't gotten a chance to do, which was to do some sightseeing, and I, I wanted to uh, to grieve his, his death and um, just kind of see the country and mm-hmm. freelance as I was going. So that's, that's what I did. That makes a lot of sense. Did you, how do you think that the experiences of your childhood being abused by your dad and then not having had a great deal of your life surrounded by him, how did that affect you? What did that um, do to you as far as how you began to live life and how you live life now aside from having met him and made amends? I mean, growing up and anybody that's, that's suffered from abuse, sexual, physical, you know, emotional abuse, uh, knows that you spend a lot of your life trying to please other people, but you mm-hmm. spend a lot of your life feeling not good enough and mm-hmm. no no self-esteem. And it's almost like you're trying to, to justify or prove your value in mm-hmm. life. and. Mm-hmm. 
and I did the same thing, even though we didn't talk. I, I kind of went through that same thing, and, and that's the struggle of the survivor, mm-hmm. you know, is, mm-hmm. is com- coming to grips with your own truth and your own reality. So I resolved a lot of that when I uh, when I talked to him because I, I took on the journalist role mm-hmm. when we met for lunch after 15 years. Mm. You know, I interviewed him. I asked him all the questions because I knew I wouldn't get many chances to do that. So I asked him all the questions that I wanted to ask him growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, what was his job? And because he was abused too, so you know, I asked him about a lot of that, and that kind of helped me understand, you know, where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. That makes so, sense. You know, and I've said that before that I think that you know sometimes we have to realize that our parents and or those who care for us or those that are, we are in close relationships with only know what they know. They only know what they've experienced, what they've been shown. And sometimes that is at the core of why they don't treat us the way that they should, why they're not more loving, more respectful, things like that, or they abandoned us. So I'm glad you had the opportunity to talk with him about that. I'm sure that answered a lot of questions for you. I'm wondering, how did you go about finding that place within you that made you finally believe that you are valuable, that you are someone important. Obviously, you've done some great work with your writing and some of the other things that you've been doing along the way. Well, I think the whole year, year and a half that I spent in the van was, was part of that journey, that trip. I had uh, I'd always been a writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, from an, early, from an early age, I began writing. And I talk about that in, that, in uh, the e-book that I've, I've just written. My father used to beat me when I was 10. And uh, one day I stood up to him and I said, I'm too old for you to beat anymore. And let me write a paper about why he shouldn't beat me. Mm-hmm. And education was real important to him, so he let me do that. So I spent the rest of my time at home writing papers about why he shouldn't beat me or abuse me. And he never beat me again. Mm. Uh, so I wrote a lot of papers. You know, I call it writing for my life. And I wrote a lot of papers about why he shouldn't beat me. And then that skill kind of carried on. So... When I was in the van and after he died, he was the only one that um, had ever really valued my writing. That was the only thing he valued about me, I think. But mm-hmm. uh, he valued my writing, and he and he did tell me my writing was good. So after he died and he was gone, and you know, there it, it kind of I kind of let my writing drop. I just I quit writing. I turned to photography, which I'd always done, and um, some other things. But being in the van and being homeless. I, I started out as a camping trip, and then people started calling me homeless, and then I couldn't travel, and, and I couldn't get a job, and I couldn't get an apartment, and I was I finally got work with a temp agency, so I was working part-time, mm-hmm. and, I, and then I worked full-time, but I still couldn't afford an apartment, and I started believing what people were saying about, you're a homeless woman, and I'd forgotten that, that I was a writer. Right, and that all sort of occurred when you went, when you decided after your dad died to go on this road trip and to explore the world, and then it turned into something vastly different than what you had set out for. Oh yeah, it was it was horrible. It was and it, it was it was homeless. I was I was living in a stripped out Chevy van in a Walmart parking lot. You know, there was no insulation in it. There was no floor in it. Mm-hmm. I had to sheet plywood in for a floor, and then I bought a cot from Walmart and uh, and a cooler, and that was pretty much what I had in the van. Mm. And I, was, I had a Rottweiler and a cat, and a house cat, and the three of us shared this van. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it wasn't what I had envisioned when I originally decided to set out. I can imagine. I can imagine. What do you think it was during that time that kept you going? Obviously, you didn't give up. I know in your TED video, you talked about how there is a vast difference between homeless people who have no hope and homeless people who have hope. Can you share with the audience what the difference was for you? It was hope. You know, I'm from the South. I was raised Southern Baptist, and I have a, I have a faith in God. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a huge part of it, was just a personal faith. And whether you believe in a higher power or Buddha or Christ or whatever you believe in, you have to believe in something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and hope. People mistake hope with wishful thinking, you know. Mm-hmm. They wish things would change. They wish things would get better. But it's not wishing. It's a, it's a faith. It's a belief that things will get better. Right. It's a big difference. And knowing that you can make it between now and then. Because that's part of it is that ability to persevere despite your circumstances. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Good point. Awesome. So were you able to really find a place in your heart to forgive your dad? Oh, yeah. I, I forgave him before, uh, before he died. He knew that I forgave him, and, um, and, I, and I told him that. And, you know, one of the last things, I remember the last time I saw him, and I knew at that time it would be the last time I would see him. And, uh, you know, I hugged him and I kissed him on the cheek and I told him I loved him mm-hmm. and, and was glad that we had gotten to talk. And, you know, he cried, he teared up, and he cried, and uh, told me he loved me, too. And then he turned and he walked, you know, into the front of the house, and that was the last time I saw him alive. Mm. What do you think he would think now, now that you've gone through this journey since his death of being homeless and of getting back on your feet and continuing to maintain your faith and your sense of hope and doing what you're doing now to inspire other people? What do you think your dad would think about that? I would like to think, I would like to think that he would think that, that that was a great, you know, a great thing. I would like to think that, that he changed enough and that having that time, that year and a half he had to think about life and what mattered, that he realized that it's not about what you look like or what kind of job you have or anything else. It's about who you are as a person, what your character is. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to think that, that he would be, uh, that he would be proud. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure he must be looking down at you now and be very proud of all that you've done and achieved and all that you've learned from this experience, because I'm sure, as you've mentioned in your on, at your blog and in the video, it was not an easy situation to deal with. It was not, it was humiliating. It was shameful. Is that right? Exactly. It really was. And, and that's the worst part about being homeless is the shame, mm-hmm. and you know the shame and the feeling like you're not good enough, and people look at you differently. I mean, I was the same person. The only thing that changed. You know, as I was living in a van instead of an apartment, and mm-hmm. I think with the economy the way it is now, a lot of people are, are beginning to see that, you know, money doesn't protect you. You can lose your house, your mansion, your fortune. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have cancer. You can have an accident. A mm-hmm. member of your family has something happen, and, and it's it's just a step away for any of us. Mm-hmm. That's very true. I, I have to agree with that, and I think that that's why it's important to really know what our life purpose is and to can continue to strive towards that because the other things can go away in a heartbeat. Would you agree? I do. Talk to lawyers and bankers and doctors and millionaires 
we've all been homeless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you say is your life purpose then? I'm assuming you've defined it at this point, having been through all the experiences that you have. Right now, my life purpose is to let other people know that, that there is hope and that they, they can get out of whatever circumstance they're in. We see a lot of reality shows, you know, American Idol and rock stars, and, and everybody thinks you have to have a, a talent or good looks or something to mm-hmm. be successful and happy, but you don't. Mm-hmm. If you if you have love and family and hope, or can create that, then you can have happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very true. I agree with you completely. Were there people along the way during your time of being homeless that really encouraged and inspired you? That maybe kind of added to that sense of hope that you felt like you know what I can do this. That person has suffered through whatever or gone through this. And they're still going and still hopeful. Yeah, and one of the, I don't think I've ever told anybody else this. I've, I've written a little short story about it, but I, I did have lunch at a shelter one day, and I and I walked in, and I sat down, and this woman came up and sat down beside me, and I was looking across the room at this couple, a man and a woman, an older couple, probably in their 70s, mm-hmm. and she would, she would take her food, and she would chew it, and then she'd put it back on the plate. And I watched, and, and the, the man she was sitting beside would reach over and take the food that she had chewed up, and he had eaten it. Mm. And I was watching him, and, and the woman next to me saw this, and, and she said, he ain't got no teeth. Mm. Mm. So I watched, and I thought, you know, what kind of love is that, that somebody mm-hmm. would chew your food up for you and, uh, and do that? So they were homeless. So I, I, I looked at that, and it really struck me that money and wealth, has nothing to do with love. Mm-hmm. That love is, you know, between people, and, and just to be loved that much, uh, I think that was the thing that probably inspired me as much as anything along the way. Mm-hmm. And, and there were, yeah, there were people. I had, uh, I had a few uh, coworkers, and my supervisor, you know, tried to help me a lot. Uh, some coworkers uh, shunned me and, and you know, bullied me. Mm-hmm. But there, but there were people here and there, and, and always in the most unexpected, unexpected places. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, and I think that's key to what you do. You're a writer, you were a journalist, a photographer, and you look for these things, so maybe you see them more than the typical person. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of looking at the world. But that's the other thing about hope is the more you look at the world around you, the more you look for opportunities and you look for chances and you look for that kind person or you, you see the, the, the possibilities around you, the more hope you have, and that's how you strengthen your hope muscle. That's how I see it. It's a muscle to be strengthened, mm-hmm. and that's how you do it, mm-hmm. by keeping your eyes open. I love that. I have to agree with you very much. I'm very much about living intentionally, and to me that means being very observant and aware of what's happening around us because there's so much and so many things that you know we might miss are very inspiring and encouraging and hopeful when we watch other people, such as like the story you just shared. Yeah. Now, I know yeah. in the video you shared um, that one of the reasons you couldn't find a place or go to certain places, I guess shelters or whatever, was because of your pets. That is right. huge for some people. Some people are not pet lovers like you and I, and they would certainly give up the pets to be able to have a place to live or stay. What are your thoughts on that, and what do you have to say about that? Well, the Rottweiler I got as a rescue. She had been abused, and, and I had her I'd had her for about six years at that point. And my cat was, uh, I guess, about 12 years. I'd had her for about 12 years. And I think when you commit to an animal to be with it and to care for it for its entire life, that's a commitment like marriage or anything else. And I don't think you 
you give them up or put them down for your convenience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if it meant living in the van, and, and most of my paycheck went toward, you know, doggy daycare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was costing me fifteen twenty dollars a day to keep the dog in daycare, so she didn't have to stay in a hot van. Mm-hmm. And then I had the, you know, and the cat was a very unusual cat. It was a Maine uh, coon cat, and she would leave the van during the day, and she would wander around, and then she always came back, and she would come back to the van within. 10 minutes of when I got off work and she'd be waiting there at the van for me. Mm-hmm. Um, she was almost like a dog. And then at different points, I had friends that would care for the animals. Like They didn't have anywhere to put me up, but uh, I could either sleep in the driveway or on the street mm-hmm. and they would let the dog and the cat stay in their yard. So that helped out. Most of my income went towards uh, making sure the animals were cared for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's amazing. And, you know, I have to agree with you. I'm not sure what choice I would make if I was in that position but I do agree that when we have pets and we make a commitment to them it is much like the other relationships in our lives and certainly over a certain period of time you become so attached it is like family so they are you know part of your life part of living day to day that we just can't easily give up yeah they're both special animals I imagine they are so I'm just wondering then were there people that were criticizing you about that and saying look Get rid of the pets. You know, you can do something else to change your situation if it just weren't for them. Yeah, and I I got that all the time. And then a lot of people would call the police on me and Mm -hmm. say, she's got dogs in the car, she's got animals in the car, and then they worried about the animals' welfare. But, you know, the animals were fine. Mm -hmm. And I always had the, the windows down, and when the days were cooler, like in the fall, it would be 40, 50 degrees, and it would be very comfortable in the van. Mm And, you know, any hot days... They stayed in doggy daycare. They stayed with friends. So, but but people didn't understand. They just, you know, if there was an animal in the car, then they had to call the police. Right, right. So they, yeah, so the police would come out and check on their welfare and say, well, the animal's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, they have food and water and, and everything they need, and it's not hot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That got to be a drag. Yeah, I can I can imagine on top of everything else to have that going on. What was it like when you finally were able to get back into your own place? I mean, was that a transition for you to accept that, okay, I'm here now. I can not have to worry about where I'm parking or about the pets. It was, and I was, I was working, uh, I, I was working for a newspaper. I actually won an award while living in the van and writing for a newspaper. And then when I finally uh, did get back into an apartment, it felt really strange. It was too big. Mm-hmm. And I would look at apartments and I would say, this is too much space. I can't live here. And I kept looking for something small. And um, the first two weeks I had an apartment, I actually went back out in the van and slept in the van in the driveway. It was just, it was it was hard to sleep in something that big. Wow. And I know it sounds strange, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it was. I really appreciated the kitchen and the bathroom, though. Mm-hmm. I can imagine, but I can also understand. I mean, when we have such a vast change of environment, it's not easy just to jump in there and say, okay, wow, this is great. I mean, that would be very difficult, I think, for anybody to just, after that amount of time in the van and all that you went through, just say, okay, that's it. We're done with that. It took me about a year to get used to being in an apartment again. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to tell the listeners, what was the most important thing you learned on this journey of being homeless, not just about you, but about the world? That life is what you make it, and that you get to where you are by the choices you make. You can make smart choices or stupid choices, but they're your choices, mm-hmm. and that you're responsible for them. 
and that you are not your circumstances. That's what I keep telling people. That's right. It doesn't matter if you're homeless. It doesn't matter if you're scrubbing toilets now. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. What matters is you mm-hmm. and what your dreams are and what your hope for your future is. You're not your job. You're you. Mm-hmm. And character and qualities that make up who you are is what matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. Do you think that this journey you've been on has changed your perspective when you meet and come about other people? I mean, maybe you thought differently about homeless people prior to this situation and experience. I did, and actually I think my my, uh, experience of the homeless was different because before I felt sorry for a lot of homeless people, Mm -hmm. and after um, among the homeless population, Uh, I think I'm even more cautious because there are a lot of homeless people who were there in dire straits and for different reasons. Mm -hmm. But what I saw were the uh, 15 to 20 percent of the homeless that are mentally ill or they're criminals or they have a lot of problems. You know, there are addictions, uh, drug addicts, crack addicts, gang members. I mean, there's a lot of homeless people that, that truly are homeless because of, of bad choices and, mm-hmm. and they're not safe and it's not safe and I and I tell people you can feel compassion for the homeless and you can help the homeless but be careful mm-hmm. and everybody says I can't believe you said that after all you've gone through but crime rate among the homeless is higher than it is in the normal population mm-hmm. uh, because instability and the mental illness uh, a homeless person might kill or attack another homeless person for five bucks mm-hmm. or for a quart, you know, or for a bottle of water. I've seen it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think I had a, a, an eye-opening experience with the levels of poverty and desperation that, that um, are in the chronically homeless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then there's the 75 to 80% of the homeless who were like me. You know, they, they're working or they're temporarily homeless. And most people are homeless for just a few months. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. there's the chronically homeless. And uh, and there are a lot of homeless people that want to be on the streets. Mm-hmm. I, I was surprised mm-hmm. by that. There are a lot that don't want to live in a house. Right. I've heard that myself. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, yeah. but I guess if it becomes a way of life and it works for some people, then that's their choice. Yeah, and there, and there are people that just, they don't. And like I said, this is a very small percentage, but it, but it is a percentage of uh, homeless people that, like living, you know, uh, hand-to-mouth. They like panhandling. I met homeless people that were making $300 a day panhandling. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Which leads me to my next question, and I'm sure you've contemplated this, and, of course, this could be a whole other show, but I would love some input. What are your thoughts as far as how to address this problem? Because as we know, with the economy as it is and things happening around the world, Homelessness is just becoming more of an issue in our society. Have you any thoughts on how we could tackle this issue or even become more aware of what's happening and how to address that? I do, and there's and I tell people homelessness is all around you, that you probably know somebody who's homeless. You just don't know they're homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, homeless homelessness among teenagers is horrific. Mm-hmm. It's horrific. Thirteen children a day die in the United States, and most of those are homeless. Mm. Um, there's an organization called Stand Up for Kids, and they're doing a lot with uh, teenage homelessness. I, I tell people, if you want to help, find a church, find a charity, find a shelter, find 
some local organization, food bank, start a garden, do something like that to help mm-hmm. the homeless. Mm-hmm. Housing is a huge issue. It costs it cost less to put somebody up in an apartment than it does to provide services to them when they're on the street. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. people don't realize that. But it costs, I think it's like three times more to provide services to a homeless person than it does to simply put them in an apartment. Mm. That's and, a good uh, point. Yeah, and then addiction, mental illness and addiction. We didn't have the homeless problem we had until state hospitals started letting, you know, putting the homeless, the mentally ill out on the streets. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of, a lot of the homeless people that you see are, are mentally ill. They have issues that can't be addressed. And no matter what you do, they're not going to be able to support themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think affordable housing is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And places where they can be with others that can help counsel them, can help teach them some basic living skills, things like that, are very necessary. Right. And, and people that want to help but don't have a lot, I tell them just, just put an extra $5 on your utility bill. There's a, a place that most utility companies have where you can donate $5 a month. Mm-hmm. And that goes towards helping families who can't pay their power bill. Mm-hmm. And the studies have shown that once you lose your power, you're on that downward slide towards homelessness. That's interesting, so, and thank you for sharing that. That's great to know. Yeah, so instead of handing that $5 to somebody on the street who's homeless, put it towards your electric bill. Mm-hmm. You know, ask them to donate it to, to a family or somebody that's, that's struggling to keep their power on because it's, it's cheaper to keep somebody in their apartment than to relocate them or transition them into a new apartment. That's right. That makes sense. And I know that those are all great practical ideas and suggestions and thoughts about becoming more aware for everybody. What do you think, though, about the whole idea that, you know, we can all give a smile, open a door for someone? There's these little gestures of kindness that perhaps would go a long way in helping a homeless person or anyone who's down and out feel a little bit encouraged. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you you don't necessarily even have to engage with a homeless person, but you can at least smile at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look them in the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's different for everybody. And, and I tell people, if, if you want to do that, you know, be careful. Do it do it in front of other people mm-hmm. out on the street because you don't know. You mm-hmm. honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, ask at work. Check with your human resources person because chances are in a big company, that there are homeless people there. A mm-hmm. lot of people work full-time jobs and live in their car. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I think what you had shared on your TED video was great, too, because you talked about not judging people by, you know, what they do or what they drive or what they wear. I mean, we just have no idea who has what going on. And I think, really, if we could all try and have some sort of standard of just being a little bit kinder, it might help a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would go into... Um, a Panera Bread store in a really high-end part of Denver mm-hmm. where there were a lot of, you know, suburban and soccer mom kind of people around. And when I went in just to buy a sandwich, you know, they would see my van and they would see the way I was dressed in jeans and a T-shirt and they would look down on me as somebody scruffy or homeless. Mm-hmm. But when I went in in the same jeans, the same T-shirt, but I had my camera and my camera bag and my laptop with me, then all of a sudden, I was kind of like this this funky eccentric artist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they treated me differently. And right. So yeah. So the you know what you carry, how you look, uh, how you act, your demeanor, all of that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
But again, it also makes a difference how we're judging and perceiving people just from the exterior. We really don't know anything about their story. Right. Take time to get to know somebody's story. I mean, ask them. Yes, I love that, and that's what I support. I always tell people, share some of your story and ask someone else about theirs because it really provides great connection and often a lot of encouragement and inspiration when you least expect it one way or another. Can you share with the audience about your ebook, the title, and what the premise is of it? The ebook is called Stay Hungry. That's the message that Steve Jobs gave uh, at a commencement exercise, and it, and it means to me have hope. It's mm-hmm. the same thing as have hope. Mm-hmm. Stay hungry means don't settle for what life puts on your plate. Mm. Go after more. Look around you. Look for possibilities and know that things do get better. Mm-hmm. And do have that hope. Develop that faith. Mm-hmm. I love that. And where can people contact you if they want to get a copy of the ebook or find out more about your blog? They just go to beckyblanton.com. And it's B-E-C-K-Y-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. Correct. Great. Becky, thank you so much for taking the time today to share a part of your story on your Story Matters radio show. And I'm sure you have encouraged and inspired people out there who are struggling and wondering how they're going to get through their situation or circumstance. But as you said, we are not our circumstance. We are really what dwells within our heart. Exactly. And just... Uh, Take it one day at a time. Don't think about tomorrow. Think about today. Just put one foot in front of the other, and you will get through it. Whatever it is, you will get through it. Absolutely. Thanks, Becky. Thank you.